Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. There are reasons for what we believe, but the second question would be, after we know the reasons why we believe, we've been socialized, it's psychologically, it makes us feel good, it gives us an identity, then you have to ask yourself, but am I justified in believing what I believe? I know why I believe, I've been socialized into it, or because psychologically or personally it feels good, but am I justified to believe it? What's the evidence? What are the arguments? What are the arguments against what I believe? No one can do this. It takes a lifetime to do it properly, and even then you can't do it fully and completely, but this is a way to avoid opinionating about things that are important. You can opinionate, quite frankly, about business theory and about educational theory and about most things in life, quite frankly, for all I care, but if it's something as important as religious belief about what makes us who we are, I don't know if we can opinionate about that without evidence and justification. These are important beliefs. Changing business theories may not be quite as important as you and your religious beliefs or your non-religious beliefs, personal beliefs. Those are worth investigating. They're worth looking for evidence for. I don't want to imply by that just one last time that this is all about head knowledge, that you're going to find conclusive easy to understand evidence for what you may or may not believe. It's a lifelong task. It takes a lot of work. Once you ever get to the stage, some of us never get there, some of us are there by the time you're 10 years old, but once you get to the stage where you say, my life depends on this belief, um, what do I do about it? How do I know it's true besides feeling it's true? You look for evidence. You read the experts. You, you, you investigate. You look for contradictions. You look at criticisms. That's what we've been trying to do here. Rather than anyone can opinionate about anything, but it's, it's quite frankly, it's just wasted air. It doesn't mean anything. You can't say yes and no at the same time and make any sense with a belief. There's either resurrection at, at the end of life or there's reincarnation. There can't be both. You either die and go into oblivion or you die and go to a heaven. There can't be both. That, by the way, was a logical contradiction of, uh, of, of the fallacy of, of, of the double choice. Um, there's more. There's more than those two alternatives. But I'm not expecting you to be in a first-year philosophy class, but just be aware that a lot of arguments are based on bad logic. A lot of criticisms you may have and a lot of arguments for a belief you may have, quite frankly, are based on bad arguments. So without forcing you, every time we we look at a belief without forcing all of us to look for the logical fallacies. I'm just looking for some simple, obvious ones, like the Bible doesn't have to be defended, surely. See, that's relevant today. Most people in this culture that are Christian would say, hey, the Bible doesn't have to be defended. And a Muslim would say the same thing about the Quran. And I assume most popular Hinduism would say the same thing about the Bhagavad Gita. 
It just speaks for itself. I believe it. Why do I have to defend it? Well, because that's the fallacy of question begging. Circular argument. You can't assume the thing is valid because it says it's valid or because you believe it's valid. That's not an argument. What that is, is a logical fallacy. You have to give evidence why you believe the thing is valid. Today, the, ke- the test case is not the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran, but the Bible. I can't just stand up here and say the thing is valid because Christians have always believed it. That's, that's, that's question begging. It begs the question, what's the evidence? What, what are the circumstances? Like, why should I believe it? That's what we have to do. So these logical fallacies will remind us why we have to do the hard work of justifying our beliefs. They're not simple. It's a lifelong task. And you are what you read. If you read garbage like the Da Vinci Code or watch Oprah about her views on religious beliefs, that's what you become. If you read decent scholars, that's what you become. There's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week, so surround yourself with the good, the best things you can find, the most authentic, decent things you can find and experience. Reading is what makes us who we are. Um, I hope these textbooks are a good example of, of, of good reading rather than trash. The web is full of trash, but it's taken me days, if not weeks, to find these good web documents by legitimate scholars so that whether you agree or disagree is not the question, but at least this is what's probably approximating the truth of the issue, at least for, from a Christian perspective and some others. We want to justify what we believe rather than simply take them on faith. Familiarize yourself now that we've looked at God's existence and we're starting to look at prophecy and miracles and biblical texts and Jesus' claims to divinity. All of these things we need some evidence for. That's the point. Anyone can believe these things or disbelieve them, but it's useless. It doesn't mean anything. You believe them without evidence or you disbelieve them without evidence. We're right where we started. Why is the question. Why do you disbelieve or why do you believe? Um, You do have to do the hard work. If you want to live life a little more deeply and if your opinions want to be you know, substantiated rather than simply assume they're true because you feel they're true. Now, here's the new stuff. We, I, I gave you some notes on the different types of apologetics, which is another way of saying the different types of how we justify our beliefs, classical, evidential, remember, faith-based, and different approaches to apologetics. We're not faithists. We're not strong rationalists. We want to be critical rationalists. That's the word from philosophy of science that I think we should, we should take into theology. Critical rationalism, is this bottom line, is, is likely the right approach. It just means that you're not a faithist on the one hand, which means you have no evidence for what you believe. You just have faith. That's how most people live in this culture, and I think it's a serious mistake. Faithism on the one hand, and strong rationalism on the other hand, where you actually think, I, I don't have any justification for what I believe unless it's complete and conclusive proof. There's no such thing as complete, conclusive proof. So the sane position is, rather than be a faithist and have no reasons for what we believe, or a strong rationalist and think that we need complete, conclusive reasons, like, I know the law of cause and effect works every time. If I put my hand in the fire, it burns. Like basic things. Somewhere in the middle, things that are important that aren't obvious scientifically, it's, it's, it's critical rationalism. 
it says that we have to use our critical faculties, our reason, our evidence, historical knowledge, scientific, whatever we can, but we don't, so that saves us from faithism, but we never think that we're ever going to get to the end and think that we've got some conclusive proof. Critical rationalism is the humble position that we've taken here, is that we're looking for probability, that there's some reasons for what we believe. So we're going to avoid faithism, saying I don't care about reasons. We're going to avoid strong rationalism, which says you have to have complete reasons, and what we're looking for are probable reasons, probably good. It's likely that my belief is true because of such and such. That's, that's, that's the same position. Science has taken that position. The philosophy of science gave us the word critical rationalism, and I think the philosophy of religion, what we're doing here, should use the same word. You're escaping the two horrors of thinking. Religion can be proved conclusively, which it can't, religious beliefs. And on the other hand, thinking religious beliefs don't need any proof. How do people who believe in God justify that belief? He writes one about why isn't the evidence for God clearer if there is a God? Pascal's famous argument about the reason we don't know some of us there's a God is because our life is full of so many biases and prejudices and obstacles against that belief. We're skeptical. We, we, we think we need conclusive proof. Actually, Pascal was living at a time when rationalism, skeptical atheism was just arriving in Western culture, and people became very skeptical about belief in God. Pascal is saying, I, I, I can't prove God exists, but if you put away your skepticism for a while and, and do what religious people do and just try to play that game almost, um, you'll find that the evidence becomes clearer to the eyes of faith than it does to the eyes of skepticism. And he's saying that game is worth playing because you have everything to win if there is a God and nothing to lose if there isn't. Like, it's, it's a gem. That's the wager argument of Pascal. So we looked at four arguments for God's existence. Actually, three of them induced. There's the correspondence theory of truth, the experiential theory, pragmatic theory. How do we know something is true? The pragmatic theory says it's true if it works. Now, what's the criticism of that? Lots of things work, but they're not true. The correspondence theory is the one I think we favor. If what you believe corresponds to reality, chances are you're right. Cosmological argument, remember that one? That's where if there isn't a first cause, then we can't explain why there's anything at all. The teleological argument, and you, you know, the world looks like a complex machine. How could this come about by chance? Seems like there must be some kind of a designer. That's what we mean by God. This is a caricature, but you know, that's probably all we need almost, but a little bit more. The anthropic version, remember, that's the latest, the last 40 years of science. They've given us all of these 100 plus coincidences that look like intelligent design is happening, that the universe came together for anthros, hence anthropic arguments. Uh, that's what that word means, that it looks like it's all here because of some kind of intelligent design that's led to the creation of human life. If all of these hundred-plus coincidences hadn't happened in completely the right dimensions and formula and time and space sequence, 
with the exact ratios, all of that stuff we looked at, there would be no human life. And none of these things should have happened. Electromagnetism at exactly the right, the, the right force and gravity at the, and the strong and weak nuclear forces and the Pauli's law of chemistry and all of these things, they just happened to happen so that this little planet could support human life. Now, a lot of us think in science, some in science and a lot of us in theology, that this looks like intelligent design. It doesn't look like coincidence. Um, the jury's out. They're fighting the issue out in the schools now. Um, I think that's pushing things to try to get the schools before we really understand intelligent design to be teaching it, but we're getting there. It's only been 40 years. All of the criticisms against miracles, are, all of them, individually and conclusively, are cumulatively all together. They don't really convince him that there's any strong argument against miracles except someone who insists that they can't exist because we live with a naturalistic worldview. Naturalism, remember, is the belief that there's no supernatural, there's no God, there's no spiritual realm, so of course there can't be any miracle. That's what seems to happen. The last 400 years, the cultures decided, the scientists and the philosophers have decided that there is no spiritual realm because science alone tells us what's true. Science doesn't like miracles because science can't verify them. And science has the definition of miracle so loaded that a miracle couldn't happen if it fell on them, you know, like a piano falling from a building. Science rules out miracles by saying a miracle is a violation of a natural law, and those laws have been established by our experience, and there's always more experience against a miracle than there is for a miracle. One of you could say, I just grew a third toe last night, or another new toe last night in my knee bone or something. And we would say, that's, that's, well, if you said it was in the presence of God in prayer and it was an answer to a sickness I had, then it would be a miracle. But we couldn't accept that as a miracle, of course, because the rest of us have this testimony of experience that goes against your testimony Science has loaded it, saying that you have to go with the weight of testimony, of the weight of evidence. And the weight of evidence is always against miracles. It rules them out by its own definition, saying no matter what happens, you can't believe it because there's always too much testimony against it. That's very unfair. That's a very slippery, very poor logical argument. It begs the question of whether miracles can occur by simply saying science basis what we believe only on human experience. Anything which is unrepeatable can't be allowed by science. That's their other argument against miracles. Science deals with repeatable events. Like if you claim water freezes at zero degrees, you can do it in the laboratory over and over and over again. 10,000 times is kind of the, the magic number. And if it and that you have to do it all over the world. And if water freezes, you could say, okay, this, this is a scientific fact. But if anything goes against a scientific fact that you can't reproduce 10,000 times over and over again in a laboratory, you have to rule that out. Now, if somebody rose from the dead or somebody was, was healed of some, some horrible disease, that can't be reproduced. It's an unrepeatable event. In Jesus' case, it was unrepeatable. It's the only one. So science rules it out by its own definition of what a miracle is. 
Now, we've, we've, we've done a lot of work on that, because I, I was telling you last week, I think this is where it all hangs. This is what it's all about. We have a culture that that is anti, anti-spiritual, anti at least. I mean, we have New Age starting starting to move, which is all spiritual. But we have a jaded, naturalistic, scientific, atheistic, academic, almost every prof, it's, you, know, you know the story from our staff, there's a, there's a balance in the media, there's a balance in academia weighed against the spiritual realm, which means that miracles don't impress academia, the media in general, and people even more and more influenced by these powerful institutions. Some, most of them, if not some of them, but most of them beg the question. They assume the scientific method is the only truth. We don't know that. We, we don't know that God can intervene. And there's lots of testimony for miracles where God does intervene. How the Catholic Church assesses miracles. There's one little church in France called Lourdes where over 65,000 miracles have been claimed. And the church has accepted less than, less than 40 of those. Like, the, the, the Christianity is not looking for um, claiming everything that moves as a miracle from God. They bring in a, a whole committee, which is a standing committee of medical, psychological, scientific experts. And any miracle that's claimed anywhere in, in, in Catholic dominion is, is seriously tested. I mean, with the disease had to be fatal. The, you know, the, there was no medicine involved. There was no way on earth that anything except God could have done this. There's no ex- like it just goes on and on with, with, with just a dozen criteria and, a, and, and dozens of experts. So miracles are not taken lightly by the, by the Catholic Church. I think some churches claim miracles are everywhere and everything you do, it's like I was saying, it's a miracle you came to class today. Well, no, it isn't. You know, a miracle is not just anything that happens. A miracle has to be in a religious context, usually a prayer context. It's obviously... A, in the presence of God. It, it has to be a tribute to God. It can't in any way be a naturalistic event. It, 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 there, are, there are criteria that we have to abide by so that we don't reject them on the one hand and see everything as a miracle on the other hand. Justifying, justifying how do Christians, and I'm not, I better say Christian theologians because I'm not sure how many Christians do this, but how do Christian theologians justify the Christian religious belief that the Bible's trustworthy, that it's not just a myth, that it's not just some corrupted story that's been changed and manipulated. How do, they, how do they argue that the thing is trustworthy? And you know, it's almost the same question. This very Bible, my second question is going to be about Jesus' identity. The Bible is what gives us the evidence about what Jesus said and did. So I hope you can see we're talking about the same question. Jesus is recorded, his acts and deeds in the, and, his, and his words in the Bible. And you can't simply just look at the evidence of what the man said and did without justifying who wrote this. When did they write it? Can we trust them? Uh, what's the evidence that, that these words and deeds are accurate? This is, this is a high bar, you know, like this is not something that's easy to do. God knows that that's the reason why 99.9% of Christians don't do this. I mean, it's just too difficult to go through this exercise. But this is what we do in theology. And be grateful that, that institutions like the Catholic Church 
Um, uh, you know, they, they are doing this for us, and the theologians around the world are doing this work so that individual Christians, and in, like I, I hope all religions do this, that the people believe, and the people are not full-time professionals, obviously, so somebody's got to be doing this justification of these beliefs and interpreting for the people. So it's been done. So what we're going to look at is what's been done. You haven't done it yourself, but you're, you're being led in onto a pretty big secrets here and it's not really secret it's a knowledge that we all should have at some level as much as we can possibly take in if you believe in this stuff it's it i mean there there has to be some serious evidence for it so whether the bible's authentic is one question and whether the bible is authentic and trustworthy in what it says about jesus is pretty much it's another question but it's it's the same question really just in, with a different focus so one thing we did, we've already looked at uh, the fact that Jesus performed you know, dozens and dozens of miracles, just so you know there were healing miracles where, where diseases were cured, both, um, and not by the way, just emotional diseases, but, but leprosy and uh, withered bodies and paraplegics and, I mean, things that you don't see every day. Um, emotional problems only, one could always say it's just some psychological problem, um, but that may not be true, but when you see somebody that, that's been blind since birth and deaf since birth, um, cured instantaneously, that's, that's a different story completely. So there's healing miracles, there are nature miracles that, that are recorded about Jesus. Um, this is one of the arguments about his uniqueness and about his identity. Now that we've set the tone here that miracles are not necessarily false just because science doesn't like them. The Bible's filled with them. Other, other scriptures um, are not, besides the Christian one, are, don't emphasize them as much, but Christianity certainly stands or falls on miracles. It, it's belief in, in them. Jesus' miracles of healing, Jesus' miracles over nature, water into wine, calming storms, that kind of thing. There were, there were, there were nature miracles, healing miracles, there were exorcisms where demonic possession, demonic powers were um, exercised or removed from people. Um, and there was, of course, what we talked about last week briefly, the huge miracle, according to the Christian Bible, that Jesus resurrected, rose from the dead. We haven't even talked about the virgin birth and all kinds of other miracles, but the resurrection is the main one for Christians. So part of his identity, what when Christians are trying to justify, Christian theologians, their belief that God was in Jesus, that Jesus was unique, it's really based, it's, it's based on his miracles, yes. It's based on the prophecies that we talked about last time, that Jesus fulfilled 300, actually the, the official figure is about 371 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He fulfilled those prophecies. That is like the anthropic principle all over again, right? It's like saying, how could any one human being fulfill these prophecies written 600, 800, 1,000 years before he was born? How did they know where he'd be born? How did they know how he would die? How did they know his genealogy? That's what he did. He fulfilled it, and he was aware of fulfilling those prophecies, and he couldn't have rigged them, so it's impossible. So that's one of the evidences about some uniqueness that, that, that he can claim. The fulfilled prophecies, the miracles, 
And it all boils down to, though, well, where are these coming from? They're coming from the Bible. So we have to see how trustworthy that book is. It, it, you can't separate the source from the belief. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues. 